Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. There have come times of trouble, times of uncertainty, times of pain in your life, and it's caused you to turn back to God. In fact, maybe that's why you're here this morning. Maybe you're starting to turn back because there's something going on that you can't figure out, you can't solve. And, and it's kind of funny to me, and we all, maybe, maybe if you have some, uh, some family with some Christian influence in it, maybe you've had a grandma at some time or another tell you that you need to pray. Maybe you had a mama that's told you, you need to pray. You need to be praying about that, right? Maybe you had an auntie or maybe a dad or maybe a good friend that's told you, you need to pray. And we tell them or we think to ourselves, yeah, you're right. You know, I do. I need to pray more. Isn't it funny that when we get into trouble and when life starts rocking and rolling and, and, and just gets chaotic and, and hurtful at times, nobody actually has to tell us to pray at those times, right? They'll tell us that we need to pray more like when life's going normal. But when life actually hurts, nobody tells us to pray. Nobody tells us when we're afraid of something to send up a, God, if you will, I promise I will. Right? Anybody ever done one of those prayers? God, if you will, I promise I'll never again. Anybody ever done one of those prayers? Right? God, if you'll answer this, if you'll just let this happen, if you'll just let this not happen, I promise I will never. Nobody has to tell us to pray those kinds of prayers. Nobody has to remind us to pray. Nobody has to set a reminder on our calendar, on our iPhones to pray when life gets painful and when life gets chaotic. And sometimes life doesn't even have to be painful or chaotic. It just kind of has to be looking like it's about to be painful or chaotic. Like when we get scared. Anybody ever been on an airplane that's gone through some major turbulence? What do you do when your airplane starts going through major turbulence? You pray right? You're so holy in that moment, I'm telling you. Like the devil could show up with your favorite sin and just dangle it in front of your face. You're not even temptable in that moment, right? That plane is just dropping and, and, and climbing and everybody on the plane is going, oh, ooh, and there's somebody barfing over off to the side, you know, the kids screaming, right? The stewardess is plastered to the ceiling because you just hit another, you know, wind shear and just like, in that moment, you're white knuckled onto the armrest, aren't you? And you are praying. You are in contact with your heavenly Father. You're not worried about the stock market. You're not worried about whether or not you have a job. You're not, you are so holy. You're not mad at anybody. You love everybody. You're confessing sins that you had forgotten about, right? Sins you're pretty sure had ran past the statute of limitations. Like, God, I did this in middle school, and I'm not even sure it counts against me anymore, but I just want to get it out there. In that moment, those fears just come at us and they overwhelm us and they push us to pray. When life is out of our control, when, when things kind of loom over us and threaten to kind of swallow us up and, and all of these things, most of us, not all of us, but most of us tend to lean in God's direction, right? Which teaches us something about life and about trouble and about pain and about God, doesn't it? It teaches us this, that God can actually get more done in us during times of trouble than God can during times of tranquility. Can I hear an amen from somebody? When my life was a mess, that's when God was able to do his best, right? It's just the way we are. That's how things go. We don't learn anything when times are good. But when life and love, and, and living, just, you know, when we need to, to learn our biggest lessons, you know, in, in life, love, and living, it happens during times of trouble. It really does, times of adversity. And this isn't even just a religious thing. This is actually just a life thing. Uh, uh, Caleb's been playing high school basketball, and, uh, and, and it's funny to me that Caleb really doesn't learn anything from a good game in high school basketball. When Caleb has a good game, he goes back home, and he kind of chills for a little bit. Now, Thankfully, he's been learning a lot because he hasn't had a ton of good games. Is he in here this morning? All right, nobody tell him that I said this stuff, right? But when Caleb has a horrible game, dude, Caleb is, he, he's, he's asking me if I recorded any videos of the game so he can watch it. He's in the garage practicing his dribbles. He's at the park trapping, you know, practicing his shot. When he has a horrible game, when he can't hit a shot, can't buy a shot, when he's always out of position for the rebound, Caleb learns the most when he has a bad game. And so I always tell him, you know, hey, don't be so down on yourself. You learn more than anybody else on the court tonight. You know, just like look up, right? Things are good. 
And in fact, in, in the church world, in the Bible world, there's this idea that people actually grow lukewarm, this kind of Bible term. You know, people get lukewarm toward God during good times. And it's just us. It's just human nature. It's just kind of what, be, you know, what we do. And, and it could be the pain that makes us question God at times, but at least during our pain, we turn to God to ask him a question. In fact, there's, there's one time in the, in the old part of your Bible, in the Old Testament, when there, there was some of the people of God, what we would call the people of God, who were doing just like a horrible job at being the people of God. And God comes with this complaint against them from a preacher and just tells them, just, you know, he's, he's, he's sick of everything they're doing. And, and then it's like, okay, since you've been such horrible people of me, come now, he said, and let us reason together. Almost like God is telling them, okay, now that I've got your attention, now that you're just like horrible people, horrible representatives of me, now that things are shaking and things are chaotic in your world, now come close and let's talk. And that's why we talked about the Bible last week, this, this collection that we have of these ancient documents and ancient stories. This is why during times of trouble and times of chaos in your life, this book is maybe more relevant to you than ever and some of us in the, in the room, we need to go home and like pick up that Bible, right? And just kind of, right? You know, blow the dust off of it and open it up and, and get past the maps, right? You know, everybody gets stuck on the maps because they're so pretty and colorful. And you're just like looking at all the places in Europe that you want to travel when you can finally save up enough. No, nobody else did that but me. But you, you need to pick it up and you need to open it up and you need to read these stories. And, and maybe you wrote off the Bible before because it's confusing. And I get that. And it doesn't read like a novel. And, and you know, maybe some of the Bible is hard for you to believe. I get that too. And, and maybe you heard that it wasn't true or a college professor or some kind of really enthused friend told you some things about the Bible that made you question. And, and like once you question the Bible and once you question what it was saying, it was like your whole faith structure. It was like this house of cards that just kind of crumbled around you. And, and I get that. Like, that doesn't scare me that you've had those doubts and those questions. And there's a lot to unpack, and this isn't that message, but come talk to me if that's the case. But for now, even if you're having a hard time trusting the Bible, even if you're having a hard time believing that everything in the Bible is true, even if it's just at the inspirational level, if you can even just begin at the level of inspiration, just start with inspiration. I'm telling you, this book is so relevant and so helpful for going and navigating through painful and, and questionable and, and doubtful and, and, and uncertain times in life. Just start with the inspiration that these collections of stories give. And the book is so important because it tells us the stories of people just like you and just like me that have lived through uncertain times. We said this last week. This is not a book full of stories about rich people having fun. It's a story, or it's a, it's a collection of stories of, of poor people and, and disenfranchised and marginalized people and hurting people and wounded people who are wondering where God is in all of their pain, where God is in all of their uncertainty. But over and over time, and again, these people face their troubles and they face their tragedies and they face their confusion and uncertainty that so often went beyond our own experiences of uncertainty and pain. And, and they face them with fear, just like us, right? They face their pain with doubts, just like we have sometimes, with worry and questions and, and questioning God and sometimes even anger at God or anger at the circumstances around them. But over and over again, this book and these stories end up being a record of God's faithfulness to unfaithful people. Can I hear a thank you, Jesus, from somebody? They're records of God's faithfulness, no matter whether the people are faithful or faithless. In fact, if you have a favorite Bible story, maybe you went to Sunday school as a kid or vacation Bible school or something, your favorite Bible story of David and Goliath or Joseph and his brothers or, or Moses and the Red Sea or all these things, it's a story of somebody asking, will God come through? Is God listening to my prayer? Will God answer prayer? How can God be in this? How can God be in control of all of this if all of this is happening? And the answer overwhelmingly from the men and the women who lived through their uncertainty, who walked out their doubts. They come through time and time again, convinced on the other side of God's unfailing faithfulness. Not a one of them came out the other side and said, well, forget God. I'm walking away. He never showed up. He never came through. But rather, over and over again, they testify of God's incredible power and God's sovereignty and love and God's unfailing faithfulness, even though... 
on the front side of their pain and on the front side of their confusion, there was no evidence that God even cared. And that's us. We can relate to that. That's our life. That's our pain and our confusion, right? Those are our same questions. And so there's no better time than uncertain times to re-engage with this Bible, to plug back into these stories and watch God be God in our lives, even when we're not certain. So when we wonder, you know, is, is God even out there? If When we wonder, does God care? When we wonder, does God really hear me? Is God really watching? What we can be reminded of from men and women who came through uncertain times over and over again is this, that God can redeem every trouble and make it work to accomplish his purpose. God can redeem every single trouble in your life and make your trouble work for his purpose. God can redeem every single pain and confusion and moment of anxiety in your life and use those pains and use your anxiety and use the things that looked like they were against you to begin with to eventually and ultimately work to accomplish his purpose for your life. In fact, there's a famous verse that you probably have heard misquoted at some point or another and misapplied. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and it starts out like this, right? And we know that in all things, somebody say all things, job loss, right? Job loss. Am I going to get into school? Can I afford college? I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to buy my family a house. What if I have to move? Will he call me back? Will she call me back? Somebody say all things, Where's my son? Where's my daughter? Will my home survive? Is it treatable? Is the damage permanent? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, this doesn't say that everybody who loves God will only have good things happen to them. Can I hear an amen from somebody? That's just not true. Jesus doesn't offer you magic. Hello? The Bible is not a spell book to to pray off a negative bank account. Hello? The Bible is not a spell book to keep you from getting sick. If you get sick, do not go home and like lay the Bible on your forehead and hope to get well. All you'll do is end up with an imprint of Holy Bible backwards on your forehead. Like you won't get well. If you need a job, you're not supposed to take your Bible home and open it up in the Old Testament to the book of Job. And then expect that God's going to... That's not what the Bible's about. That's not what the Bible is for. We know that it doesn't say that everybody who loves God only has good things happen to them. But it's an author's way. It's a man's way who we're about to see went through some incredible pain and incredible you know, uncertainty in his life. It's his way. Uh, it's his conclusion when it comes to enduring painful and uncertain experiences that God can redeem every trouble. And God can make your trouble and God can make your pain and make your doubts and your worries, all of it work to accomplish his purpose. So if that's true, and if just for the sake of time this morning, you kind of accept as true all these stories in in, in the Bible and these stories and testimonies of men and women that have gone through uncertain times and come out the other side believing that God's still certain, you know, if that's true, then it actually brings us to another question that today's message is about. If we know that I go through uncertainty and I'm not sure where God is now, but I can have hope that when it's all said and done, that God will finally be shown as as in control of everything, then we're left with a question of what actually happens in the meantime? What do we do in the meantime? What do we, how do we live in that gap between my trouble and my worry and my pain now and God's final answer and God finally opening my eyes to see how he was really at work all the time? What do I do Today, what do we do while we wait for God to answer prayers? What do we do when the bank account keeps getting lower, right? What do we do when the relationship feels even more distant or there's no callbacks from our interviews? What do we do when it feels like that's my answer and I'm supposed to be heading that way, but all of the evidence in my life just seem to point to the fact that I am actually heading farther and farther away from peace and from an answer? Well, it turns out that the same guy that wrote the verse that we just, we just read, he actually gives us another important insight along these lines, and, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. But before we do, I want to talk about this guy. His name was Paul. He wrote that verse that we just read. And, and, and here's why it's so important that we talk about Paul this morning, because we need to know who is giving us advice, right? How many of you know that you don't take financial advice from your broke uncle? You don't take advice on dieting from the guy eating his fourth slice of cake at the birthday party. 
Like, that's just not what you do, right? You don't take car mechanic advice from me because I only know pretty much where the gas nozzle goes. And that's all I know about cars, except for how to change out a flux capacitor and maybe get some new blinker fluid. I do know how to work on those things. But other than that, I don't know anything else about that. So don't ask me about cars. You need to know that you can trust who you are getting your advice from. And so Paul is somebody that's going to talk to us about these things and tell us what to do in that gap between worry and anxiety and and confusion and uncertainty and God finally showing us the answer. But before we listen to what he has to say, we need to know that we can trust what he has to say. And Paul's an interesting guy because when Paul shows up on the pages of history, he actually doesn't show up on the pages of history as a Christian. He shows up on the pages of history as a Christian hater. If there are some Christians you don't like, you would have really liked Paul because Paul hated them. He had them arrested. At one time, he had somebody stoned to death. He had them dispossessed of their homes and and driven out of their neighborhoods and driven out of their cities. I mean, Paul was just antagonizing and persecuting Christians. And then one day, on a road to Damascus, Paul had a supernatural encounter with a risen Jesus. That's what he claimed he saw, the alive and risen Jesus, and it changed Paul's life forever. And he went from hating Christians to becoming the most intense Christian that's maybe ever lived. And during that time, during the first century, he traveled all over the Mediterranean Rim and began to start little house churches for the Jesus movement. And it was, which was just so strange because Paul was this kind of strange, from what we know from history, this strange, small kind of Jewish man. And he left his Jewish world, he left the land of Israel and went out into the Greek and Roman world. And this strange little man shows up in the Greek and the Roman world where Rome dominated and ruled over everything. And he starts telling people, hey, I want you all to believe something that's really, really hard to believe about God. And I want you to abandon everything that your parents have taught you about Zeus and and Mars and all of the Roman and Greek mythology and all of that stuff. And I'm going to tell you all you need to know about the one creator God. And they looked at Paul like, who are you? And he said, well, I'm Paul. I'm Jewish. Like, okay, what's that mean, right? And, and Paul just, he would set up his tent-making shop in all these little cities. He was a tent-maker by trade. And he'd set up his tent-maker shop, and, and he'd start making tents and selling tents, and he would get money. And as he got money in, he would actually share his money with the people around him that were in need. He would share his food with the people around him that were hungry, people that were pushed to the edges of society, people that were marginalized. He would begin to show them the love of Jesus Christ, and people couldn't stay away from this strange little Jewish man who came to show them something brand new about the way that they thought about their God. And typically, he'd go into a community and start with the Jewish people first because they kind of knew each other and and that kind of thing. And he would get a base going. And then from there, reach out into these Greek and and Roman communities and and Roman communities, actually, at that time and, and start inviting people in who had been marginalized and pushed to the edges and started telling them that, in fact, Jesus was this Jewish Messiah, but he wasn't just for the Jewish people. This Messiah, this word carried with it this idea of of a rescuer king. Someone that was coming to, to show the world what God always intended for humans to be. And Paul kind of took that idea of a Jewish Messiah and turned it around and said, not only was he the rescuer king, the Messiah for the Jewish people, he was the rescuer king for anybody, whosoever will, who wants to come and find this new kind of life. And so he would open up his life and invite people into relationship from all kinds of different circumstances. And that world was so radically divided, way more divided than it seems like our world is today. And how many of you know that our world just seems like it's getting crazy divided? All the Democrats raising hand. No, don't. I'm just messing. Like, no, like all the, everybody who voted for Trump. No, don't raise your hand. Like everybody, hands down, hands down, everybody. Like even in this room, right? It's just like there's tension. Like you just talked about Trump. And you just said Democrats and Republicans, and I don't know how I feel now, and I want to get up and leave, but I'm not sure if I should be offended because I'm not really sure. I'm not going to tell you which side I'm on. I'm like a chameleon. I'm going to move. Nobody knows. Like a fish in water. Sun Tzu, the art of war. Check it out. But it's all this division going on, and black and white, and Black Lives Matter, and and cops, and and they're supposed to be against each other, and and immigration, and immigrants, and how do you feel about that, and where do you stand about that, and you just hate everybody else, and no, you don't love anybody else, and all of these things, and you just want, it's just so much stuff going on to try and pull us apart, 
and to put us in all these different tribes and separate us from each other. And all the while, the message that Jesus came to show, the Messiah came to show us, is that all of us have one Father. There is one God, one Creator of us all who has loved us way beyond our limited understanding and our limited comprehension. And to all of us, to everyone. I don't care what race and what nationality and what socioeconomic status you are. I don't care what your background is or who you voted for, that all of us can have our lives redeemed and brought into community and fellowship with each other. Thank God for the three people that said amen to that. God bless you today. You don't have to give an offering before you leave. Everybody that just said amen. And so against all kind of natural odds, Paul would do this work, and, and you know, he shared love, and, and he actually demonstrated his life of love, and he would actually engage in philosophy and in, in talking with different people and, and, and have these deep philosophical you know, kind of conversations and navigate people to this ultimate idea. And then there were also some answered prayers and a few kind of supernatural episodes that happened during his ministry. But against all natural odds, Paul became extremely successful at starting up these Jesus communities all over the world. Well, the thing is, not everybody was happy with what Paul was doing. In fact, the the kind of Jewish religious community that Paul had actually started out belonging to, that hated the Christians to begin with, they got wind of what Paul was doing, and they wanted to shut Paul down because Paul was offering the Jewish Messiah to non-Jewish people. Paul was telling non-Jewish people that they could be in on the promises of God's favor that he had originally made to Jewish people, and they didn't even have to become Jewish in order to get in on it. And Paul would tell people, don't worry about all those strange Jewish laws. He would tell the men, don't worry about circumcision. You don't have to be circumcised to join the church. And male membership in the church spiked after that. It was like amazing. He told people, don't worry about it. You can eat bacon. And again, there was another huge membership spike. Can I hear an amen from somebody? You can't be saved if you don't love bacon. I'm telling you now. And he would tell people, you just need to demonstrate your faith and your trust in what God has done through Jesus Christ. Turn from your old ways of living life. Turn from these ways of life that divide you against each other and the racism and the hate and the evil that consumes you, and and the greed, and and the lust that just breaks things apart and destroys families. You can have all of those wrongs forgiven. You can have all of your wrongs in your past be washed away in baptism. Can I hear an amen one more time from somebody that knows what Paul was talking about? That you can be filled with a new kind of spirit altogether, a Holy Spirit, a new force working on the inside of you to energize you and and change your direction and, and cause you to actually become part of this work that Jesus launched while he was here. And Paul's telling everybody, it all rests on your faith. It all depends on your trust in Jesus Christ. And so the Jewish religious leaders hated Paul like they had hated all Christians, and they waited for Paul to come back to Jerusalem on a trip, and, and when Paul came back, as he, was, uh, do, as he did periodically from time to time, they actually sent a mob that was going to beat Paul to death, and they caught him, and they started beating Paul up, and somebody called the cops, 911, and the Roman guards showed up because Rome was occupying all of that land at that time, and Rome were the police that were, you know, the police force, the Roman guards, the Roman soldiers were the police force occupying Israel during that time. And Paul's like, help, they're beating me up. And the Jewish people started lying about Paul and saying, well, we're only beating him up because he's trying to destroy the peace that Rome has so graciously brought to our land by killing everybody that was opposed to them. And so they, they went to, to they, they were going to pull back and let them put Paul to death. And Paul said, no, 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 I'm a Roman citizen. I'm Jewish by birth, but I'm actually a citizen of Rome. And so by my rights as a Roman citizen, you have to give me a fair trial. And they asked around, and they found out that what Paul was saying was true. And so they realized they'd have to send Paul back to Rome for a fair trial. And so they handcuffed Paul. They chained Paul to this big, huge, burly, I imagine, it doesn't say, but this big, just muscly Roman guard, you know, just full of hair and sinew, just, you know, like one of these old Roman guys you might see in a movie. And and they handcuff him to this Roman guard, and they put... Paul on a ship for Rome to see Judge Judius Maximus, and, and his, show, his ship gets blown off course, and, and Paul spends two weeks lost at sea, chained 
to a Roman guard. And then his ship is shipwrecked by a storm and he's washed ashore and has to survive. Again, surrounded by Roman guards. All of these things. This was just one little episode of the pain and the confusion and the doubt and the uncertainty in Paul's life. In fact, in one of his letters, he actually listed out some of the things that he had to struggle with. And look at this. If you think your life is bad, look at Paul's. I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, which was this little kind of twist in their law where they could whip somebody 39 times, and that would be, you know, enough to, to kind of allow them to get that punishment again, because once they whipped them the 40th time, they could never have that punishment again. So Paul's like, these guys kept doing it up to the 39th time, and then they would quit so that they'd come back and whip me again. Five times these guys whipped me, 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones, right? I've, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Can you guys imagine that? Ooh, something brushes up against your leg. You're in the open sea for a day and a night. I've been constantly, constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from all the Gentiles, the non-Jews. I've been in danger in the city. I've been in danger in the country. I've been in danger at sea and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone often without sleep. Can I hear an amen from any newborn parents in the house? I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold. I have been naked. Like, it's crazy. Paul's life is just like this comedy of errors, this comedy of tragedy and pain and suffering, everything that he has gone through for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and Paul finally gets to Rome, and then he has to wait for his court system, to, for the court to hear his case. And everybody knows, do courts move fast or slow? Two years Paul is under arrest, and he's waiting for his trial. And while he's in prison there, he, re- he writes letters to all of those little house churches that he starts. And this is so important that we know this about Paul, because what we're about to read seems at first to be overly simplistic. I might even venture to say that when I get to the point that I want to make with you today, when I get to the thing that I'm hoping you'll take home and put into practice, you might even be a little bit disappointed. But hang on with me, because you have to know, before you brush it off, you need to know the pain that the man who writes what we're about to read has gone through in his own life. And no matter what you have gone through, no matter what uncertainty I have gone through, no matter what doubts we've had and wondered if God is listening and God is going to answer our prayers, Paul has been in way worse situations than us. And Paul's saying, hey, I've been shipwrecked. I've been arrested. I've, I've been you know, bitten by a poisonous snake and chained to a Roman guard. And, and in fact, maybe three years after this, they would actually come for Paul one morning and they would lead him to the outskirts of the city. And Paul would be beheaded quietly about three years after this letter that we're about to read. And that's how his life ended. And Paul spent his life talking about the Jesus that he shows up on the pages of history actually hating all because of mercy and grace and love that was given to him so freely in his life. And so he in turn turned towards his world and gave that same grace and mercy and love freely to the people that was in his world. So you can trust what he's going through. If you've ever been in pain, if you've ever suffered, and if you've ever wondered how in the world could God be in what I am going through, Paul knows exactly what you're talking about. Paul knows exactly what you're experiencing and what you're living. So what does Paul have to say to us about living in that gap, living in the meantime between the pain and God showing up to work out his purpose? Well, he starts out in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4 with something so profound. You guys ready for this? Here we go. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's it. Let's have an altar call. We're all going to go home now. This is it. Rejoice in the Lord always. You're like... Paul, you have no idea what's going on in my life right now. How can you tell me to rejoice in the Lord? And Paul's saying, no, no, no. I'm in prison right now while I'm writing this, right? Not the kind of prison with cable TV and a comfortable bed and a nutrition program. He was in first century Roman prison. And Paul's saying, I didn't tell you to rejoice in the circumstances of your life always. I told you to rejoice in the Lord always. Well, Paul, what does that mean? What do you mean rejoice in the Lord? Put some other words into that gap. 
What if we said, rejoice in your new car? See, we understand what that means, right? Rejoice in your new job. Rejoice that you just got engaged. Rejoice that you made the team. Rejoice that you got a scholarship. What are you so happy about? Well, I just got a raise. I'm rejoicing in my raise. What are you so happy about? Well, I just got married. You're rejoicing in your new marriage. Paul is saying, I want to focus your attention on a certainty that you can count on during uncertain times. And the certainty that you can count on during uncertain times are not circumstances because circumstances change. But there is one thing that never changes, and that is your Lord, your creator, your maker, the one who planned your life, who put you on this world on purpose. And I want you to rejoice in him. And then I want you to tie an emotion to your focus. And that emotion that I want you to tie to it is joy. Well, what about your Lord fills you with joy? And that's what I would ask us this morning. What about the Lord fills you with joy? Isn't it his grace that's unending? Isn't it his mercies that are new every morning? Isn't it his kindness and his faithfulness and his strength and the fact that he knows our name and that he calls us by name, his love and the grace of God that was his unearned unearned favor? What What about the cross and what the cross tells us about our forgiveness, what Jesus has proven to us about God's thoughts over us? Paul says, think of all of that. Keep all of that in your mind. Make all of that your focus and rejoice in the Lord, not just when things are good, but rejoice in the Lord always. And then Paul says, in fact, that was so good, I want to say it again. I will say it again. Rejoice. Anybody ever have a favorite song? You put it on repeat? My family hates when I get a new favorite song. I'll listen to one song for like three days. I will. I I will. I love new music, and I will put it on repeat. The same song for like three days drives Chelsea crazy. She can't stand it. But Paul's saying, put the Lord on repeat in your mind and in your heart. Think about him continually. Let him fill you up with joy. This is why Sundays are so important. Hello. This is why we hope that City Grace is the best place on the planet to be on a Sunday morning. This is why you should clap with us and sing with us. Why? Because it's turning your focus to the goodness of God. I've seen you move. I've seen you move a mountain. I believe you'll do it again, right? One thing remains. Your love never fails. All of these things. What are we doing? We are trying to help ourselves and to help each other to come together around this one theme, that we have something in the Lord that will never run out, that will never Never fade, that will always, always, always keep us full. So we come and we sing together. Some of us sing together. Some of us watch other people sing, right? And some of you have been instructed by people who love you to not sing, right? And just, but we do. It's why we lift our hands and we celebrate and we clap and we do all of these things. We're rejoicing in the Lord. We're not rejoicing in our circumstances. We're rejoicing in the one who controls over our circumstances, who rules and reigns over our circumstances. The one who holds us in the palm of our hands and is able to redeem all of our trouble and make it work according to work out his perfect purpose. This is why we celebrate Baptism Sunday so big. If you've not been here for a Baptism Sunday before, you need to come for the next Baptism Sunday. You, if you've not been baptized as an adult, making a conscious choice and a conscious decision with your faith, you need to do this. You need to celebrate your baptism. I'm telling you, there is nothing like baptism. When you climb, This is the thing about baptism that gets me. There's nothing special about the tank or the water. We talk, I talk about this in Growth Track all the time. We use a horse trough because the city wanted like over 10 grand to put a permanent baptistry in up here. So we're like, no, forget it. We'll just buy a $300 horse trough. So we bought a nice one, but it's a horse trough. We use water that we get from the janitor's closet through a regular rubber hose. There's nothing special about it. We do run it from the janitor's closet so we can get hot water now, which is awesome because before it was always cold water and people would get in and just... Couldn't even talk, just right? I mean, just like freezing to death. I mean, it was like baptizing a goosebump every time. It was just people didn't even look like people anymore. There's just one big lump of goose. It was just, you know, and so now, but there's something about, there's nothing special about the things, but it's this faith and this trust that when I go back under that water in the name of Jesus, when I, when I feel that water close over my face, mm, you know, when you start to hear, 
Like, every, you know when you're underwater and you hear things and every, everything's got that like muted underwater sound and all the music that's going that we do on baptism Sundays, all of it gets muted. And then like we bring you back up out of the water and we keep you under there depending on like how bad of a sinner you were. So like, no, I'm just kidding. Like everybody only goes down for a little bit, I promise. But like somebody, I'm going to drown. Like, you know, no, that's not what we do. But when you bring you back up out of the water and that water breaks over your face and, and you breathe in air for the first time after baptism and it's the air of a brand new life. It's the air that uh, you breathe as a brand new person that all of your, your past and all of your worries and, and your failures and your sins and your mistakes and all those things that have haunted you for so long and you've wondered, how can I get rid of them? Jesus has promised that if you'll trust me that going through this strange ritual that he started 2,000 years ago, if you'll put your trust in me, then it's not just you getting wet. There is something supernatural that is taking place. In heaven, all of your failures are washed away and your name is written in what he calls the Lamb's Book of Life, that you will rise up out of those waters ready to walk and to live out a brand new life. Paul's saying rejoice in that. And not just for a little while. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, always, always rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Don't rejoice in your circumstances. No, nobody would do that. That's crazy. But focus your mind on what is always certain, even during uncertain times. And Paul would say, I'm in prison, and you're in the middle of all of that mess, but we don't rejoice in our circumstances. We rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on, and he kind of takes what seems a little bit of a strange turn. He tells us in verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Other translations say, let your moderation. I tried to look this up to kind of find out a better word. Like, what are you talking about? Let my gentleness be evident to all. And one commentator, one this guy that knows Greek a lot, I don't know Greek, except for those things that you order at the restaurant and souvlaki and all that kind of stuff. That's, I know, and my mind has escaped me from all the other stuff. Anybody know the Athenian grill burnt down recently? I mentioned Greek, and I just got hungry all of a sudden because the Athenian grill was my favorite place to go. Back to the message. Let your gentleness, let your sweet reasonableness, this guy who knows Greek really well, it's your sweet reasonableness. Anybody know somebody that when they go through troubling times, they're just able to kind of maintain their calm? And you're wondering, how in the world can you do that? And what Paul is saying is, don't let your hard times erode your integrity and your character. Don't let your fuse get short because times are tough. Don't do and say things that will destroy the relationships around you. Things are tough, but if your joy is only associated with good circumstances, then as your circumstances erode, so will your character. And Paul is trying to tie our character Paul is trying to tie our disposition and our gentleness and our, our sweet reasonableness not to circumstances that change, but to a God who never does. See, for most of us, our gentleness is a result of our circumstances. In other words, if life is good to me, well, then I'll be good to you. And what Paul is saying is like, come on, you don't want something that you have no control over to have control over you. So let your gentleness be evident to all. And besides, the Lord is near. God's not gone anywhere. You keep wondering where God is. The Lord is near. Paul had been through incredible, incredibly uncertain times, incredibly painful times, incredibly doubt-filled times, and yet he comes through it all saying, the Lord is near. And then he ties all of this back to a series that we just finished a couple of weeks ago. We called it Jesus' Do Not Commands. And he tells us something that we should not do. Do not be anxious about anything. Ever had somebody tell you, don't worry about it? Hey, don't worry about it. What do you feel like doing when somebody tells you don't worry about it? Screaming at them, right? Like yelling at them. What do you mean don't worry about it? That is so unhelpful, right? That is so just not what I needed to hear in this moment. You're telling me to not worry about it because you don't have a clue what I'm going through. You don't have a clue how I'm feeling or what I'm thinking about this. So, of course, you think I just need to get over. Man, we feel just so angry at these people. And Paul knows we're going to feel really angry at him if he just leaves it there. So, Paul's like, okay, settle down. Let me take you through the next couple of verses and lay out what I'm talking about. When things get so uncertain that you just want to retreat from the world, when things get so uncertain that your character starts to change and your gentleness goes away and your anxiety starts to take over, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, 
Everybody say job. Everybody say school. Everybody say kids. Everybody say marriage. Everybody say financial. In every situation. In other words, no matter what you're worrying about, this works. I don't care what you're facing. Here's what you can do. I'm not just saying don't worry about it. I'm saying don't worry about it. Do this instead. He's not just leaving us with a platitude. This means that today on the way home, hello. It means tonight when the lights go out and you're feeling all alone and this thing's still in your mind, still bothering you, still robbing you of sleep, Paul would say don't worry about it. Do this instead. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, this is the part that I told you you might be disappointed in. Because if you heard me say right now, don't worry about it, just pray about it, you're probably pretty disappointed because you've already been praying about it. You're like, just pray about it. That's all I've been doing for the last two weeks. Maybe that's what I started doing again recently. I've been praying about it already, and it just feels like things are getting worse. But notice, prayer is just one of the things on this list. He said prayer, yes, that has to happen, but then petitions. Okay, wait, that's a wrinkle. That's something I hadn't really thought about before. I just kind of lumped them all together. Anybody else ever just lump all these together if you've heard this before? Like, just pray about it. That's what we're supposed to do. No, no, Paul's saying there's something else. Don't just say something at God. Ask for something specific from God, which means that I have to have an idea of what specifically to ask God for. See, if you owe money on a bill and you don't have money to pay that bill, we typically just ask God for the money to pay the bill. And we don't ever stop and ask God to deal with us and the habit that caused us to have that bill in the first place. We don't ever stop. Yeah, it just got real in here, didn't it? We don't ever stop and ask God to help us with the spending habit that made us not have the money to pay the bill in the first place, did we? See, Paul's not just saying, don't worry about it. Paul's not just saying, just pray, just throw up a prayer. No, Paul is saying, you need to specifically ask God for something, and you need to stop and pause and think about what you're going to ask him for. And then he says, with thanksgiving, which is really strange, because Paul, why would I give thanks? I'm still on this side of my worry. I still don't have an answer. I still don't have a solution. And Paul would be saying to us, well, yeah, but have you ever been in a situation where you couldn't call on God? Have you ever had a time in your life where you didn't have a God that you could look to? So now that you have God, be thankful. Okay, 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 Paul. With prayer, with petition, with thanksgiving, and then he says this word right here, present. In other translations, it says, make your request known. It's like an unveiling. It's like taking a cloth off of something that was covered up for a little while. It has to do like with a mystery, solving a mystery. The Greek word where this originally came from was like people trying to solve a crime. And the step-by-step, the clues would reveal an answer progressively. Paul is saying, that's where I want you to take your prayers. Now look, stay with me for a little bit because it's getting a little bit deep and I don't want you to get lost, all right? This is where a lot of us check out when it comes to prayer. We don't typically use a ton of brain power when it comes to our prayer. Prayer is an emotion, right? Prayer is filled with emotion. Prayer is like a spiritual thing. Why would I be reasoning when I pray? Why would I be thinking before I pray? I'm supposed to engage my soul or my heart when I pray. But my brain? I don't know about my brain. Like I remember, I've memorized some prayers, right? Anybody ever memorize a prayer, right? I learned some prayers when I was a kid. That's what I do when I pray. That's what prayer is. And Paul is showing us there's something beyond just that when it comes to our interfacing with God. Let me ask you something. When's the last time you sat down and planned what you were going to pray? When's the last time we sat down and planned out the things that we needed to talk to God about? the things that we needed to God to change, the answers that we wanted to make sure that we asked God about. When's the last time we planned what we're going to pray? Now, here's the thing. In the regular world, in the natural world, we would do this. If you had a huge need, 
And suddenly you found a surgeon that could take care of some kind of illness or, or tumor or something going on in your body. Or maybe you had a huge financial need and you were introduced to some kind of you know, wealthy philanthropist or something like that. If there was somebody important who could solve your problem, wouldn't you at least sit down beforehand and think through what you wanted to say to them? And wouldn't you even start the conversation with something along the lines of, thank you so much for your time and seeing me today? See what Paul's kind of trying to do? He's trying to get us to acknowledge who it is that we're talking to. God is not some mysterious wizard of Oz tucked behind a box in a curtain somewhere that we can never really get to know. Paul is trying to draw us in to the conversation and the relationship that exists on this side of what Jesus has done on the cross. And so he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, come to God like this. Like bring your whole self, bring your mind, bring your soul, bring your heart, bring your habits, bring your fears, bring your anxieties. Bring it all to someone who loves you more than you could ever imagine that somebody could love you. In other words, prayer isn't like magic. Prayer is, is this thing where it involves all of ourselves coming before someone who wants us to know him as a heavenly father. It's about engaging this heavenly father in conversation and back and forth and opening up the deepest secrets of our heart and asking him to show us what he already knows about us, but we've been tricking ourselves into not seeing. How many of you ever tricked yourself? Let me ask you this way. Anybody ever said to yourself, I knew that was going to happen? Anybody ever said to yourself, I should have seen that coming? You know what you've admitted right there? I knew. I had the ability to reason out what was going to happen, but I deceived myself. I closed my own eyes. That's why we say love is blind. You've been tricking yourself. Hello. We deceive ourselves all the time, and God knows who we are and what we really are. And Paul's saying when you come to God, it's time for you to reveal, to present, to make your request known to him, to start peeling back the layers of all this self-deception that you have put on so that you've come to the point where you're just like, God, I need $50. God, I need this. God, I need a job. God, I need a house. God, I need... And God's saying, no, no, no. I don't just want that superficial top layer request. When you come to me, bring all of you. And when you bring all of you, I will give you access to to all of me. Paul's saying, let's get specific. Let's think about this. Like maybe it's time for us to examine our own hearts before we ask God to have a heart. Let's get to what is really driving our anxiety and our fears because in times of uncertainty, hello, our biggest fears are revealed. In times of doubt and pain and confusion, that's when our deepest insecurities come to the surface. But very few of us pray at the level of deep fear and identity. Mostly we pray at the level of, God, I want this, or God, I need this. Here's my Christmas list. And then we say, well, prayer doesn't work. I didn't get anything that I asked for this year. But Paul is saying now that you're in this time of uncertainty, now that you're feeling your whole world begin to shake and begin to crumble, then, you know, feeling pains you've never felt, having doubts you've never, you know, asked or, or, or had before, questions you've never asked before, come to God with your prayers, yes. But then get specific and think about what you want to petition Him for. Thank Him for the kind of connection with someone who doesn't just hear prayer, but can actually do something about the things that we pray over. And then as you come to God, begin to uncover your requests. Begin to take off all of the things, all of the, the, the methods of self-deception that we have and make your request known to God. Uncover, present your request to God. Don't just say, God, here's what I want. Come to God and say, God, here's what I think I need. And I'm afraid that if you don't come through for me, that this is what's going to happen. To start unpacking our fears, to start unpacking our anxieties and our worries. Now listen. Every man in the room just kind of unplugged from what I'm talking about today. Men, we don't like to feel insecure. We don't like to seem insecure. We don't want to seem weak and not strong and unable to handle our own business. 
Can I hear a deep voice amen from some men in the house? That's right. <clears throat> Clear your throat before you say it next time. Can I hear a deep amen from some men in the house? <laughs> we just don't. We want everybody to think we got the world on a string. Really, that's turned into a noose around our neck. It's choking us. It's killing us. It's killing our marriages, and it's killing our relationship with our kids. And it's time for us men to get real with someone who is so much greater than we are, with someone who is so much wiser and smarter than we will ever be, with someone who has unlimited power and unlimited ability. The omnipotent God of heaven and earth is waiting on you and on me to just get real with him to expose our fear and to expose our uncertainty. And when, it's finally, when we finally are able to move past, help me find a job or help me buy a house, we can start unpacking the why behind our request. God, what I'm really talking to you about is my security. God, what I'm really talking to you about is my ability to provide for my family. God, I really have this need in me to be esteemed by my peers. God, I really have a need in myself to be seen by my own kids a certain way. Because when I look back at my family history, I don't want my kids seeing that in their family history. And so it's not just God give me a job. It's God, you've got to give me a job because this is what I'm worried about. And I'm worried about my own identity and my own perception and the way people around me. And that's when God... God can begin to do his work. That's when God can begin to give you a value you'll never find on your own. No job can ever give to you. No amount of money can ever give to you. That's when you can be confident that I am a son of the king. I have been thought of as worthy and valuable and loved. And the cross tells me everything that I need to know about myself. So Paul's saying, look, don't just throw up a simple prayer. Don't just throw up some words that you memorize in Sunday school. But when you come to God, when you come to God, dig all of these things up. Pull all of these things out and just lay them on the altar saying, God, this is what I think I need. Don't just pray a quick, now I lay me down to sleep. Spend the time necessary to begin to trust, to put yourself in a position where you need to trust the God that hears you. Spend the time necessary to find yourself and to find out why these things fill you with worry. And Paul would say, trust me, I know what, I've talk what I'm talking about. Paul would tell us, trust me, I've lived this. Trust me, I've been through this and I've changed because of this. And if you can ever get to there, that total transparency with God, here's what I found has happened for me. And Paul goes on in verse 7, he says, And the peace of God, not the peace of good circumstances, because circumstances change. Not the peace of a full bank account, because your bank account can go empty like that. Just give your wife the card for a day. You'll find out how quickly it can empty out. Not the peace of good circumstances. The peace of an unchanging God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a peace that doesn't depend on circumstances. It's a peace that you find with the Heavenly Father. It's the peace that you find once you trust your life into the care of one who can redeem all of your troubles and make them work according to his purpose. And then Paul, at the end of this, I think Paul's this is where his sense of humor comes out because Paul's in prison. Paul's been handcuffed and chained to a big, burly Roman guard, and now maybe at this time he's got two or three of them standing outside of his cell in the hallway. And Paul says, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding, that's stronger and bigger than everything else around, it will stand guard over your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, he knows how these guards stand vigilant, how they don't let anything in, they don't let anything out. They control the situation. They're not controlled by the situation. And Paul is saying the peace of God can be like one of these guards that stands guard over me. And it can be the peace that guards your heart and your mind, what you feel and what you think. The peace of God can rule. And then one last thing before we close up for today. Notice where Paul says this, the, the peace of God will stand guard. It will stand guard over your hearts and over your minds in Christ Jesus. See, a lot of times when we pray, 
We like to send God out on missions for us, don't we? God, fix my marriage. God, be on my job. God, I pray traveling mercies over my kids. I don't know what traveling mercies are. but God, I, I pray for this situation. God, I pray for them. And Paul's saying there's a different level of peace. Peace doesn't live there. Peace doesn't live away from you. But when you finally get to this level of transparency and honesty and openness with God, the peace of God will actually come into your mind and stand guard over your mind. The peace of God will actually come over your heart and enter your heart. In other words, in times of uncertainty, it's not about trying to get God to change the circumstances. When you pray in times of uncertainty and fear and anxiety and doubt, Paul's saying pray until the peace comes. Pray until the peace comes. That's what we do in the gap between our fears and God finally showing us that he was at work all along. Amen. If the musicians could come this morning, I'm asked them, I've asked them to sing this song that we sang earlier. We're going to sing it together a couple of times through this morning. But before we do, I want to give us something to practice this week. There are two lines. If you want to get out your phones and take a picture of this, or maybe if you've taken notes, you can write this down. But here's what I want us to do this week. This week, I want us to pray two things. I want us to pray, Heavenly Father, I need you to, and then I want you to fill in the blank with whatever's going on in your life. And then after you pray that, after you present that petition to God, I want you to go to this next part. God, if you don't, I'm afraid that, and then I want you to fill in the blank. Heavenly Father, I need you to change my son's heart. Heavenly Father, I need you to give me that job, to provide this. I need you to heal that. But then it gets interesting, right? And if you don't, I'm afraid that this is going to happen. Put it out there. Voice it. Put it out into the air. Search your heart. Search your motives. Ask God to help you see what God already knows about you. God, I need you to give me that job because I'm worried about providing for my family. And then you begin to see, well, no wonder I'm worried. I think that providing for my family is up to me when God said if I'll trust him and put him first, he would be the one to provide all of my needs. And the source of our worry and the source of our fears and our anxiety starts to come out and come to the surface once we begin to voice our fears and our anxieties to God. And once we can get to that level of transparency and that level of honesty with God, then we open ourselves up and it's into that open place. Once we clear out the open space of fear and anxiety and worry, now there's room for the peace of God to come into our lives, for the peace of God to rule over our hearts, and for the peace of God to stand guard over our minds and our thoughts and all of the things that keep us up at night, and the peace of God that humanly we can't understand, that from a human standpoint doesn't make any sense. Paul says it will flood your heart and your mind. It will help you sleep the deepest sleep of your life because you know that it does not depend on my circumstances, but even in troubling times, in the most uncertainty, uncertain of times, that God is still God, even when I'm not even certain that He can see or that He can hear. Can we all stand in the room this morning? So I want you to practice this this week. I want this to be what you take home and take away from this message, to pray these two things. Heavenly Father, I need you to, and fill in the blank, and Father, if you don't, I'm afraid that this will happen. But before we move on, I, I just want to do this before we go, because I'm a preacher, and I'm up here talking about things that are the Bible, and sometimes it feels like that's disconnected from Monday and Tuesday, right? If you're in the room this morning, and you could say with me that you know exactly what I'm talking about, like that you've been in times of trouble, and times of uncertainty, and times when you question God, and had doubts and didn't know where to turn and it didn't seem like God was anywhere around. If you've experienced that and you've come out the other side of that problem or that uncertainty or that season in your life, being more certain that God sees you and hears you, would you lift your hand in this room this morning? Come on, look around. Keep your hand up high. Come on, look around you, everybody. Look around you, everybody. Keep your hands up high. Look at this this morning. This isn't just a sermon. This isn't just a preacher talking. God bless you. You can put your arms down. This isn't just a message. This isn't just something that's on paper or in a book somewhere. This is real. This is alive. This is what's on offer from God. This is what it looks like to live your life following Jesus and to, to stop depending on yourself. To, I, I mean, we just, we just don't get it sometimes. We just don't have the resources. We don't know enough. We're, we're not smart enough. Come on, all of us. There are times we're just too weak. 
We're just incomplete. We're broken. There are some things in us that are wounded, and we can't heal ourselves. But in those times when it looks like God is nowhere to be found, in those times when life just seems to be shaking all around you, and you're not sure if anything is going to turn out right, you can know that if you ever get specific with God, if you ever give open and honest with God and expose everything that you're afraid of, everything that you're worried about, everything that's giving you anxiety and making you eat tums and bite your, na- bite your nails, if you can ever present all of that to God and clean out all of those things from your heart, uncover all of those things in your heart, that the peace of God can flood your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.